Welcome to the Small Groups in the Wesleyan Way podcast, where we are all about going beyond programs, beyond best practices, and beyond curriculum to recover and learn from our Wesleyan roots and to explore the foundations for small groups that produce disciples of Jesus Christ, who in turn disciple others. My name is Scott Hughes, and I'm the Director of Adult Discipleship here at Discipleship Ministries. And I'm Steve Manskar, Director of Wesleyan Leadership at Discipleship Ministries. And I can't tell you how excited I am for this episode. I'm going to proclaim this the Super Bowl edition of our podcast. I knew we had to go there, didn't we? <laughs> Absolutely. For those who don't know, uh, I grew up in Atlanta. I'm a huge Atlanta Falcons fan, and I could not be more excited that I have two weeks to celebrate. Well, should we add long suffering? <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. Who fear what the consequences of what could happen here in two weeks. Um, but couldn't be more excited that my team is is in the Super Bowl. And, and, and there's going to be some more connections that I'm going to bring out in terms of how that relates to this particular episode. But, but first, we're going to draw this, this analogy um, about what it means to be a disciple and, and draw a distinction between just um, a pew sitter and a, a, an actual follower of Jesus Christ. And so it's an analogy we've, we've sort of come up with. And, and I'll let you expound upon this, Steve, about the difference between a fan of Jesus and a player someone who's really a participant in the life of Christ. Well, if you think of a fan, it's football fan. Football fan, yeah, like that's Scott, me. Scott's an incredible super football fan. <laughs> um, today, you would fans are people who show up and uh, they buy tickets. Done that, yep. Um, and and they, they, well, frankly, they don't even have to buy tickets. They, you just watch games on the TV. You, yeah, and, my you know, favorite and, way of watching invite, it. Invite yeah. friends over. Um, but I'm particularly thinking about, you know, being in the stadium. Okay. The fans are the people who buy the tickets, who sit in the seats, who come to support their team. Wear the jersey. And they, they wear the gear, the, the jerseys. Um, for in ba- at baseball games, they wear the caps yep. and the the jerseys of the players. Face so, paint and face paint. <laughs> well, my son loved the face paint. Um, yep. Sometimes they even wear they'll wear the jersey of their favorite players. Warwick you know, Dunn, with, with number twenty eight. Warwick uh, Dunn, twenty eight. The, the names of their play. What's his name? Dunn. Warwick no, Dunn. Warwick? Okay. Yep. That that's the jersey I'll be wearing Super Bowl Sunday. So it's the only one I have. But you know, my favorite player. So the fans. Get as cl- try to get as close to the team and invest themselves a great deal. Emotionally speaking. Yes. <laughs> and uh, Sometimes financially speaking. <laughs> well, yeah, often, particularly if you're buying tickets for the Super Bowl. Yeah. Um, we've <laughs> I um, looked at that number. Cha-ching. But there's a big difference between the fans and the players. Um. The fans make, while they make a huge emotional investment in the team, they don't make the same physical investment. Right. They don't, you know, the members of the team, if you're on the team, if you're a member of the Atlanta Falcons, you're probably working out right now. That's right. Better be. Um, you're running, you're, you know, you, you're, you're keeping your body in peak physical condition. You practice every day. Uh, well, most days, with your teammates to perfect your skills. Yeah. You you learn to to work together as a team. Yep. That there's no like you know I played football. 
And I don't know how many times my coach said, there's no I in team. Ah, yeah. Um, it's all about the team and supporting your teammates. But so the, the difference between a fan and a, a player is, is huge. And, 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 it's a level, and it's a level of a deeper level of your, give, how much of yourself you give right. to the goal. You know, the goal for football, the goal is winning. Um, so I know this is not a perfect analogy, but for disciple, when we bring this into what, you know, why on earth are we talking about this? <laughs> There's a difference between someone who simply shows up occasionally to a worship service or to a church activity. Um, and someone who gives their life completely to Jesus Christ. Right. And is out in the world serving and witnessing to Christ, living, li- living intentionally as a representative of Jesus Christ in the world. Yeah. Now that's, and I want you to hear me, I'm not saying that we shouldn't care about the fans. Right. There are lots of people who are fans of Jesus, who need our love who need our compassion, and who, as we're going to hear later in this podcast, we have in our tradition as Wesleyans, as Methodists, as United Methodists, have within our, our system, our tradition, a proven way of helping fans become disciples yep. and want to become. And a lot of these fans want to be, you know. That's right. I bet Scott wants to be down there on the field. That's right. I want to be a cornerback and take on Julio Jones. I've got him. That's I got right. the speed. <laughs> so a lot of fans want to be on the That's team. Right. Absolutely. And it's our job as leaders in the church to give them what they need in order for that to happen. And it's frankly, it's our responsibility That's to right. do that. That's right. Yeah. So I like the key phrase that we talked about earlier was intentional habits. Yeah. Uh, fun factoid for you. Matt Ryan, quarterback for the Atlanta Falcons, tries to get 10 hours of sleep every night. That sort of in, <laughs> that sort of intentionality with his habits, so he is ready to play for his teammates mm-hmm. and, and help them to win the game. I think that's pretty amazing. So continuing this theme of um, Super Bowl edition, um, I had the opportunity um, to listen to you and Tom Albin, um, and we're going to get to hear that interview in a minute. And, and for me, it was sort of this experience of watching. It was like Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady, you know, in the Super Bowl. <laughs> is, you know, I, I'm not only a, a football fan, I'm also a Methodist nerd. <laughs> and to hear uh, you all both in the interview and actually before and after the interview was really an, an amazing exchange of, of knowledge that you all bring to this. So I'm very excited for this interview that you're going to share with us from with Tom. Well, it, was, it was fun. So yeah. I'm glad we did it. So tell us a little more about Tom and what he brings to this conversation. Uh, Tom Albin is, actually Tom and I came to the Discipleship Ministries the same year, 1999. Um, Tom is the Dean of the Upper Room Chapel. Before he came here, he was a professor at Dubuque School of Theology, and before that he taught at Boston University School of Theology. Um, Tom has done doctoral work in uh, Wesley Studies at Cambridge University, where he, as I say in the interview, um, he didn't study the Wesleys, Mm. he studied the Methodist people. 
Well, thank you, Steve. It's always a joy to be with you and uh, to be a part of uh, this podcast and what people are doing. And I think the place to start is, uh, let me begin in Britain in the 18th century, but think about the parallels with the United States today. We have these people who are the, the nuns, the duns, the seekers, uh, and over and over in the early Methodist diaries, there's this phrase uh, that appears in both men and women where they were saying they were desiring more of God. They wanted something spiritually real, but they had no one to guide them. Hmm. And really what John and Charles Wesley did in the 18th century is that they saw the sheep without a shepherd. Uh, They saw the people who were seeking, uh, but the established church and some of the other churches were really more inside the box, inside the building. You come and enter our pathway. We're not interested in what you're seeking. We just, this is what we have. And uh, today, I think people are seeking, but they're not finding in the box and in the church what they want. And so John and Charles, seeing this deep need inside of people, created a system, uh, as you and I both know, very uh, uh, kind of providentially. I mean, the, the, cl- the class meeting was developed and the band meeting before that, and then the select society, and then the penitent society, and some of those things you've already talked about. Well, yeah, and I think... That's what I, I say in my, in my, you know, when I do workshops and stuff about this, is that this this didn't come out of a, Wesley didn't get this out of a book. Right. Right? Yeah. It didn't come out of a program that he bought somewhere or found in a library. <laughs> it yep. emerged out of pastoral experience and need, right? Absolutely. And, and an attentiveness to the hungers of the people spiritually and a desire to meet those spiritual needs in a way that made sense so that it emerged. In fact, Gordon Rupp talks about the emergence of Methodism. Uh, And as they took the bits that they knew, saw the things that produced life, found other ways to connect people to Christ. And I would say it's a combination of uh, strong biblical theology, uh, commitment to scripture, reason, tradition, experience, the Wesleyan quadrilateral, but also this attentiveness to the Holy Spirit so that it's almost like, you know, the book of Acts. It seems good to the Holy Spirit and now to us that mm-hmm. we're, we're going this way, uh, but the spirit in a dream says, no, come over this way to, to another place. And so the Wesleys sometimes were kicked out, sometimes called out. Uh, of the established systems. And I think that's relevant for today. But what they developed was for every stage of what they understood the spiritual and theological journey, prevenient grace, convincing grace, justifying grace, sanctifying grace, and ongoing spiritual maturity, they realized that there was this need in a human being and a desire uh, that And I think we sometimes forget that every person has this desire for God, this desire for more, and that if we'll just nurture it, you know, you don't, I didn't have to, I have three children, I didn't have to beat any of them to get them to crawl. After when they were ready and their muscles were ready and their brains were ready, they started crawling. And I didn't have to force them to walk, it was in them. 
And I think sometimes we forget that the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer, if there isn't arrested development or coerced suppression, uh, people want to grow. Mm-hmm. And so they developed this system to help people as seekers, and you talked about that when you did the trial band and the class meeting, where in my research, uh, I've dug into the lives of about 625 early Methodist men and women in Britain. And uh, in their lives, their journals, their letters, their diaries, or the Arminian magazine account of their spiritual journey mm-hmm. – uh, there is this desire for more of God, and they're looking for it. The Methodist said, you want more of God? Here's the path. Doorway, trial band. If you're sincere, we've got a place for you. If you're playing games, no way. Uh, we only want to work with the people who are really committed. And in the class meeting, about 60 70% of them were sincere seekers. They didn't believe yet. They hadn't been born again. Uh, but the system of the class meeting was small group spiritual direction, and it was in homes. It was not in the building. They, of course, the Wesleys didn't have buildings, but I think if we were looking at where to meet people today, the small church, the, the home church, the place for seekers, uh, and a man or a woman, a class leader uh, who can help people with small group spiritual direction and they could ask their questions. And part of my writing, as you know, is I looked at the when they could tell us in their diaries and journals from when they were first convinced that they needed more of God and wanted it until they were born again, averages about eight months. Sometimes it's two or three years, sometimes it's two or three days, sometimes it's an hour, but it's much longer than people have typically thought that you get these poor, ignorant, Dairy maids and coal miners moved by an eloquent Oxford Don, John or Charles, <laughs> and they just scare the hell out of them, and they get converted on the spot, and the whole movement begins. No, they're they're called not into a, they're called into a home, and into a process mm-hmm. where their questions could be asked and answered, and they could go away and think about it, and then as they came to the place that they understood more of God. Their theology, which sometimes is very distorted, uh, gets healed by the scripture and by good common sense. Then they're willing to give their heart to God, which is really more the Methodist term. It's not converted or saved so much as it is uh, the new birth. I'm born again. I'm born in the spirit. Or I give my heart my deepest being to God. Mm -hmm. And once that happens, then you go from being a seeker to a born again, you know, instead of in the womb of seeking, you're now born into the world of the spirit. So you're in a band, a small group for single men or married men, single women, married women, because as a born again person, you need spiritual grownups, parents to parent you into how do I live the Christian life? A classic example today, many college young people leave our churches, go to this college. Uh, They've never seen a college class in their church. Uh, They know how they're supposed to behave at MYF or or youth group. They get to college, and the world's there to tell them what you do with the weekend. You know, our can in your hand, our drug in your nose, uh, somebody different in your bed. Well, you go that way. It's not satisfying. You've, you become a Christian. Now what do I do with a, as a Christian college student? And you need the body of Christ. You need that band, that other four or five young college men around you to say, here's what Christians do on the weekend. 
and we can have more fun without the drugs mm-hmm. uh, and so on. So the band meetings help people in their spiritual development born again. Then as you got to the place that you were no longer crawling or walking or even pedaling a tricycle, uh, now you're on a bicycle or you want to get on a motorcycle, spiritually adult, uh, there's the select society or select band, sanctifying grace, had a group that could teach you what it meant, show you how it lived in your daily life, and then nurture you in that relationship of loving God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind or the holy tempers that you write about and show so well, and maybe that's another handout that ought to go with this, along with this chart Mm -hmm. uh, that's available. There's, uh, for those of you who are listening to the podcast, there's a PDF file that has uh, 15 years of my life on one page, (laughs) uh, because I, I went to England with the desire to know how did the Wesleys Everybody agreed that the small group system of Methodism was the power of early Methodism. And, um, and so that selects society. And then we talked about just a moment ago the leaders meeting. And I want to explain that a little bit because I missed it in my first writing. In fact, first 10 years, almost 15 years. Uh, that the Wesleys, when they went into the new place, would meet first with the leaders, the class leaders, the band leaders, the visitors, the sick and poor, the society stewards, anybody in a position of leadership, and they would hear their stories, hear what was going well, and hear where they were struggling. Then they would give them spiritual advice, scriptural background, some historical illustrations, and they knew the needs of the United Society. Then they'd go preach to the whole group and teach them because you didn't get into the society meeting without a ticket. This is the committed. And probably the two biggest mistakes or changes from British Methodism to American Methodism, one is uh, the people who came over hadn't been thoroughly immersed in the leadership system, most Mm -hmm. of them. So they just did what they knew how to do in a class meeting or whatever. The other thing is with exponential growth, they got uh, enamored with evangelism and lost discipleship. And so huge amounts of evangelism and babies without adults to nurture them in the faith, And then uh, not a diet and a system to help them grow in the faith uh, meant that we had lots of baby Christians, uh, but we would not have the small groups to help them grow at the level of provenient grace, justifying grace, sanctifying grace. So the leaders meeting is vitally important. And if I could do one thing today for American Methodism in the 21st century, I would unpack the brilliance of the Wesleyan small group system in Britain and the importance of setting leaders up to grow themselves so they can grow their ministry and they can care for the people in the church and help them to grow. Um, So that's kind of the the British context. Uh, All lay people. Uh, the number of ordained folks involved in British Methodism were never more than a handful, maybe two, yeah. 10, 12. And all, everybody else were lay preachers, nurtured in this system, and then when they had gifts, grace, and fruit, they were loosed to help others develop the system that developed disciples. When we came to North America, the people didn't know as much, and so they couldn't give as much, 
And then evangelism happened, and so they just piled everything into the class meeting. And, well, you know more about American Methodism. Why don't you talk about your theories or thoughts about what happened here? Well, I think it's it's aligned with what what I in my research and what happened here is as you said they didn't the, the American methods the people who who came from Britain to come here they didn't know the details the intricacies of the Wesleyan system mm-hmm. they knew what they knew they knew the class meeting yeah they knew the society um and so the emphasis was on the class meeting, and in the early 19, 19th century, 1800s, you know, by 1845, the class meeting was on life support, um, largely because of, like you said, that emphasis on um, personalities, on, on evangelism without, you know, without an emphasis, real emphasis on discipleship. And so you, you saw this rise of really dynamic class leaders who are dynamic personalities who attracted people to them. Mm-hmm. And so I've read books that were published between 1845, 1855, uh, the biographies of these beloved class leaders, and they s- talk about how you know, brother so-and-so had 260 people in his class. Oh my goodness. And that sort of destroys the dynamic of a real class meeting, of accountability, of support, of that spiritual direction. Um, so, and then preachers started dismounting in the late 1840s, and as they become stationed people, they then, the preachers, which are ordained, right, take on the pastoral work that the class leaders were doing. Yeah. Yeah, we really lost um, our discipleship system. Uh, but I want to go back to that leaders meeting. I think we lost the Wesleyan understanding of how to nurture leaders. And I grew up in the state of Kansas. And uh, I sometimes say the United Methodist Church in this country, particularly in Kansas, used the Pony Express method of discipleship development. You write a, saddle a person with a job, you write them till they drop, and then you get a new chairman and you just keep on going. <laughs> <laughs> Where the Wesleys, on the other hand, uh, saw potential in people, put them in a position, gave them some experience, but at least once a quarter, there was a leaders meeting, and the assistant or the Wesleys themselves met with the leaders, heard what they were doing well, heard the problems, and then gave them biblical, theological, practical instruction of how to keep leading and lead better so that disciples were formed rather than just hearers attracted. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think what you said is, is exactly that same thing, um, that we use our leaders today, but we don't grow our leaders. And if we're not growing disciples, uh, then people grow weary. Or a few extraordinary, spiritually gifted, you know, I don't want to undermine or discount the power of the Holy Spirit to do anything, yeah. but, but the Wesleyan system was much more integrated in how it created nurture, growth, understanding, and experience at every stage of convincing, prevenient grace, justifying grace, and sanctifying grace. Growing up as a young person in the church, all I knew was justifying grace. I knew that I needed to be saved. And I joined the church and make a pledge to the budget. And if I'd done that, I was a disciple. 
that's what disciples did, is that they believed, belonged, baptized, make a pledge, and there was a, a work of supererogation. It was the fifth thing, and that is serve on a committee or teach a Sunday school <laughs> class. And if you did that, you were a great disciple. But nobody discipled the disciplers. Nobody nurtured the lay leaders. And to call people to lead without nurturing them, I think is spiritual malpractice. Mm-hmm. And I think our church is weak today because we haven't really understood the depth of the Wesleyan system and reappropriated it for our time. Mm-hmm. Kind of like when I see uh, a family who the mom and dad are great gardeners and then they get elderly and go to the retirement home and the kids move in their house. And the first year after the parents leave, the garden doesn't look very bad. And the second year, it's not trimmed and fertilized at the right time and it's looking shabby. And by the fourth year, they've torn it all out and put down tar paper and rocks on it, you know? Uh, We haven't learned the intricacies of nurturing disciples. Yeah, and I think just we need to wrap this up. Sure. Uh, And I'll just, to close this, I think I'll say that that the Wesleyan system that we started this that was we're talking about here, its its goal, its telos, its its aim, was holiness of forming people who are shaped and and pursuing holiness of heart and life, love of God with all their heart, soul, and mind, and loving who God loves, loving their neighbors as themselves. Yeah. That the system of the, the society, the class, the band, the select bands, the leaders meeting was all aimed at a network, a system whose goal was to shape people into the to, image of Christ, into the image of Christ, Absolutely. to become like Jesus Yeah, um, through love, accountability, support with the, and the, 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 the practice of the means of grace. That's what that's all about is about forming people who are shaped in love the love of God and become channels of that love for the world that God loves. And I believe and, that's in all of us. It's in our yeah. DNA. And we need to believe there's more and to expect that more and to keep seeking, asking, seeking, knocking. I think you're exactly right. Amen. Well, thank you for being with us, Tom. This has been great. It's really always good to be with time. you too. Thank you. So I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. Like I said, it really was watching two great Methodist thinkers come together and and talk some, it's a little bit, you know, maybe nerdy history for some, but I think a really important history when we look at reclaiming our Wesleyan roots and how that might help us today. I mean, one of the things I took out of this was today how much we have grown into a model where it all depends upon the pastor. They are sort of the the CEO of the church. If somebody's sick, they've got to go take care of it. They've got to do all this stuff. And I, I think for me, one of the things we've got to remember when it comes to small group ministry is the ability that it has to raise up and nurture and disciple leaders of the church. So it's no longer just the pastor's job. They're not the, the lone ranger doing it all, but rather they, they help equip and support and, and kind of get out of the way sometimes to, to enable Christians to become the disciples God's calling them to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's, it forms disciples who make disciples yeah. and who disciple others and who are equipped to do a lot of that, the caring ministry 
of watching over one another in love. Um, and it helps pastors, and, and I think a lot of pastors need to learn how to share their pastoral power yeah. with these leaders that the Holy Spirit is raising up and has placed in every congregation. We just need to give them what they need to do what God is calling them to do, to, to share that ministry with us. That's right. Yeah, and I think that's absolutely true when it comes to pastors. I mean, I know I was on a webinar yesterday and someone mentioned they're having a hard time because of uh, the pastor and, and his hold on authority and within the church. But I think it's also true for just for staff members in general of a church. It doesn't have to be just a pastor. It could be any staff person or lay leader who tries to exert a certain amount of control instead of joining what the Holy Spirit is doing and, and watching and looking for how can I help what God is doing, already doing in the life of the people that I'm surrounding myself with and um, tasked with leading? How do I help equip them to, to grow? How do I give them more responsibility in a healthy way mm-hmm. so that they can grow into who Christ would have them to be? One of the things you mentioned as well, Steve, that I thought was helpful in, in this conversation is, is to bring it back to the baptismal vows. Uh, that's always something we, we you've talked about, and, and Taylor Burton Edwards, liturgy man, I like to talk <laughs> about is um, the importance of the baptismal vow. So remind us of how that fits in. Well, it's this ultimately everything that we've talked about today is ultimately about what we need as the church, as particularly Christian, as leaders of the church, and particularly as ordained elder. I am an ordained elder, as are you, Scott. Yep. That. Part of our, we are ordained to word, sacrament, order, and service. So this order piece is mm-hmm. about ordering the life right. of the congregation. And the way I understand that, what that means is our responsibility is to order the life of the congregation so that the congregation lives out its baptismal covenant. So the congregation provides the means for all of the members to be faithful to their baptismal covenant to the promises that all of us make in baptism. And so that's what this Methodist Wesleyan system of small groups is ultimately about is, and the goal, the, the, the end, the, the aim, right. you know, the, the you know, well, the, the theological term, the telos oh, yeah. of baptism is holiness of heart and life. The, to become like Jesus in right. the world. That's right. That's why one of the vows we make is to live faithfully as a representative of Christ. In the world. In the world. Yep. That the grace of Christ flows freely through us. And so all of this is about, as my friend and mentor David Lowe's Watson says, is removing all of those blockages mm. to grace. Yeah, that's a great way of thinking about it. Um, and, and that is about you know, doing all in our power to increase their faith, confirm their hope, and perfect them in love. Yeah, well said.
So as we wrap up this Super Bowl edition, and as I look forward to seeing my team hoist a trophy, right? That's going to be their reward. Go Falcons. Go Falcons. Uh, we have a reward. We have a giveaway. We've, we've talked yes. about this, and, and we have our first giveaway. Uh, goes to Scott Murray. Has a great name. Scott Murray, who is the co-lay leader at Jackson First United Methodist Church in Jackson, Tennessee. He, um, he both made some comments on our SoundCloud page. He also emailed us, and we've had some interchange with him so we appreciate scott and what he's doing and tell tell scott what he's going to win scott is going to win a copy of my new book disciples making disciples a guide for covenant discipleship groups and class leaders well i know he's going to enjoy that and get a lot out of it and so that we want to remind all our listeners do so as well do likewise interact with us be as interactive as possible you can find us on twitter steve where can people find you on twitter uh, uh, my Twitter handle is at smanscar, and I'm at Rev Scott's tweets. I'm also at UMC Adult Form. You can find us on Facebook. You can find our email at, on the UMC Discipleship UMC Discipleship dot org. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, find us there. Find a lot more resources on that page. Uh, you'll also see um, you'll see uh, some PDFs that we have attached to our podcast that are uh, helpful resources as well. So email us your questions, your comments. Give us an iTunes review. We're on iTunes. Rate us. Give us a review there as well. And so we look forward to connecting with you and being in ministry together. Till next time. Peace. Small Groups in the Wesleyan Way podcast has been a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Visit all our podcasts at podcasts.umcdiscipleship.org.